Hello, and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And as usual, I'm joined by Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities, one of the big corporate and research-breaking firms in London. It's been a short week this week, Simon, for the markets because of the bank holiday, but there's still been a lot of interest and announcements being made this week. So why don't we start as normal by telling us a quick review of what's been happening this week? You're absolutely right. It's been a busy week for the markets uh, and not a bad one too, actually. Obviously, four-day week, but the first three days of that working week, the the market was up quite nicely, about 4% or so. Uh, although the last day of the week has been decidedly choppier. We, we've seen the market sell off a little bit just on those ongoing concerns with regard to uh, relations between the US and China going forward. Uh, in terms of investment trust, probably slightly behind the overall marketplace. But actually, interestingly, the sector average discount uh, that we've talked about before uh, is narrowed. It's gone from uh, slightly wider than 8% into nearer to 6%. So I think that's a positive sign. Certainly in my book, it suggests that there's more interest in the sector, probably suggests more buying demand at the moment as well. So we're entering into the uh, summer period, which is often, uh, so people believe anyway, often quite a quieter period, not such a good one for the market. But what's your sense from talking to the investors that you've been talking to this week? Do you get the feeling that uh, optimism is now returning? It's spreading from just the uh, those who were the contrarians when the market bottomed to a more broader uh, recovery? Or is it uh, just another natural week without any real significance to it? Again, it, people often talk about selling May and go away and uh, don't bother to look at the market again till much, much later in the year, September, October time. Um, I think it'd be very different this time round, just because clearly, as we go through this process, more people are going to be able to gauge exactly where we are. So I don't think it's a moment to take your eyes off the market. Um, it's been a very busy week in terms of updates uh, and announcements and results. And as we go through this, we're beginning to get a clearer picture of where everybody stands. So what does that mean in terms of share prices and the general market direction? Well, we'll find out. I don't think it's going to be the case that everybody's going to be able to report good news. Um, and it's fair to say that some underlying companies are priced for perfection, but equally uh, there are others that there's quite a margin of doubt in there as well. So I, I think it's just going to be a fascinating period for the market over the next few months. Yes, and what we've said all the way along is that uh, because of the diversity of the sector, we're going to see uh, parts of the market which do well and parts of the market that do less well. And of course, that uh, polarization has increased uh, during the uh, the pandemic because it hasn't affected every sector equally. But let's start in talking about individual trusts. Let's start by talking about one of the bigger, better known trusts, and that is Caledonia. We've talked about this before and said if you invest in Caledonia or investing alongside a very wealthy family, in this case the Kayser family, shipping magnates of years gone by, it's a very broadly based uh, investment trust. So what have they been doing and what have they been saying about their different types of investment? So they had their annual results out this week uh, and that was for the year to the end of March. And it was again a really interesting set of results. So the, the basic story was that for the, the first 11 months of that period, in other words, to the end of February, all was going well. But clearly, March was a very difficult month, as it was for everybody. Now, the way that that particular portfolio is set up, it's probably fair to think of it in three different parts. There's a private company section, so a private equity element, and they've got about a dozen or so uh, unlisted companies. A third or another proportion is uh, in public equities, so listed companies, and that actually held up quite well. They're quite cautious investors, it's fair to say. And then the final segment is that they invest in funds, 
uh, a number of which provide exposure to private companies, often in Asia and the US. And that, that didn't do too badly through this period at all. So really, the attention was on those private companies that they've got controlling stakes in. And it, 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 so I'd say it was a mixed picture. So one of the names they have in their portfolio is Buzz Bingo. And unsurprisingly, that's been hit very hard by COVID-19. Uh, it's, its physical sites have all closed, though it has an online business that, that is doing well. But clearly, the valuation was hit. Uh, and it's interesting to consider how that business might perform coming through the other side. Uh, another of the um, unquoted holdings is the Liberation Group, which is a pub group uh, based down in the south-southwest of the UK. Uh, and again, clearly a difficult time is to be in the pub business or the brewing business. Uh, and they've also got a stake in a, in a business called Seven Investment Management, which, as you might imagine, their assets under management have, have shrunk during this period. So that valuation was hit. But at the same time, there's some kind of green shoots there. Some of the, the other private companies that they've got, such as Deep Sea Electronics, appears to be performing well. So, you know, you pays your money, it takes your choice. It's, uh, it is, as you say, an interesting business. It's on a discount wider than 20%. It has this tremendous record of growing its dividend. It's 50 three years of consecutive growth in terms of the, the dividend yield, um, and it's over 2% at the moment, 2.3%. So as you say, a family office and a, a very interesting story. So the rationale behind investing in something like Caledonia is you have to be aligned yourself, if you like, with the uh, with the ambitions of the controlling family or the, or the management group in it as well, uh, which is going to be long term, right? It's going to be a very broadly diversified portfolio. Presumably, there are still members of the family who uh, are interested in the income from the investment trust, and therefore you saw, you know, you're interested in long-term sustainable dividend growth. And as a price for that, because they invest in private companies, as you say, you have to accept a bit of volatility in the share price uh, as of from today to tomorrow, this week, next week, and you sometimes will be trading at a big discount. What are you meant to think about as a private investor if you if you come in and invest in something like Caledonia? How are you meant to think about the discount? I mean, does it actually matter very much? Does it move in and out a lot? What's the story in terms of, of that aspect of the investment trust? I mean, it's always worth keeping an eye on. I mean, just to put it in perspective, uh, as of the close of Thursday, it was on about a 23, 24% discount. That, that compares with an average over the last 12 months of 19, but it's been between a 13 and, you know, during those kind of uh, difficult days in March, it went out as wide as 39. That, that was quite exceptional. It wasn't there very long. I wouldn't necessarily... Uh, suggest that people buy this on the basis that it's going to go to a, a premium rating. It has, over the last 10 years or so, traded around the kind of mid-teens, high-teens kind of discount and reflecting that that element of unquoted. But I think many people will see a Caledonia Investments as, as, you, as you rightly say, a long-term investment vehicle where your interests align with those of the, uh, of the family that still own a big stake in this, this company. And they are looking for um, that that dividend to grow over the long, long term and, and generate capital growth as well. So, uh, I mean, some people have talked about it as kind of bottom drawer investment. You know, you just pop it away in the bottom drawer and don't really think about it too much. I'm, I'm not sure I'd entirely endorse that because I think it's always worth keeping an eye on these things. Um, but certainly it's very much a long term uh, supportive investor. That's very much what it does. And it's certainly got this fantastic dividend uh, record, as you've, as you've alluded to. It's one of the so-called dividend heroes that... Uh, the AIC, the Association of Investment Companies, the trade body, uh, is constantly flagging up. Okay, so that was Caledonia. Let's move on to another interesting trust, uh, one uh, which I followed for a number of years. and It used to be a very specialist vehicle, but has now been growing quite rapidly, uh, and that is Capital Gearing Trust. 
Can you tell us uh, something about them and what they've uh, been doing in the last year? So Capital Gearing Trust, they had uh, results out this weekend. They are very much focused on wealth preservation. That That's their, their starting point. And they have a portfolio that consists of a whole range of, of asset classes. So they will have government bonds in there. They'll have index-linked government bonds, uh, to be more precise, is a big chunk of the portfolio. Uh, they'll have preference shares, corporate debt, but they'll also have a reasonable amount in uh, equities and, and collectives as well. So the, the investment team there, there's three of them, including uh, Peter Spiller, who's been involved in this uh, fund for uh, decades, quite literally. He's been involved for a very long time. He's a, a very cautious investor who's developed a very, very strong long-term track record, supported uh, in recent years by Alistair Lang and Chris Covier. Um, and it's in, in this particular period in time, the enemy was up slightly, just short of, of 1%. And they tend to be quite canny in terms of where they invest. They look for uh, slightly esoteric investments often. They take advantage of inefficiencies in the marketplace. So they will invest in the investment trust market themselves, uh, where they see investment trust trading on a, on a, on a wide discount. But they have, as Capital Gearing Trust has become far more part of the mainstream uh, in the last few years, they've adopted a zero discount policy, and that's enabled them to issue shares at a premium. So in fact, now they've got a market cap higher than um, 500 million uh, in size, whereas not that many years ago, they would have been um, a very, very small company indeed. So it has been a tremendous success story. Yes, it's moved from being a sort of connoisseur's choice, which was a very small thing, about 100 million at one point which is always trading at a premium as well. So it's very difficult to, to buy the shares. And then they've been pursuing a deliberate policy of growing the trust, uh, partly for succession reasons, I believe. Uh, and their great claim to fame is that there's only been, I think, been one year when their uh, net asset value has not risen, which is uh, an extraordinary track record over nearly 40 years, which they've been uh, in running that uh, particular trust. But they are very cautious. And I think one of the things that struck me actually about their announcement was that They've actually, they've been very, very cautious for the last two or three years, been very worried about the valuations in the market and all the QE and so on. But they have actually increased their equity exposure in the, in the last few weeks, which is something of a change in direction for them. Whether it lasts, of course, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say. But uh, it's been a very interesting uh, trust. And indeed, a lot of uh, private investors have been drawn to it because it offers or appears to offer the same kind of defensive qualities that uh, you'd find in things like personal assets and uh, to a lesser extent, RIT. So let's go on to another one. Talking, We were talking about income earlier in Caledonia. Let's go on to talk about a specialist debt fund, basically, called, which, again, is quite popular with a lot of wealth managers and I think some individuals. This is 24 Select Monthly Income. A slightly confusing name, I think, but uh, perhaps you could distinguish which part of that is the, <laughs> is the name of the management company. And they pursue, obviously, a completely different strategy to, uh, to equity trust. They produced some results, or at least gave a briefing, I believe. What, what's been going on there? You're absolutely right. They, they produced interim results for the six-month period to the, the end of March. And it was a, it was a tough period, and it's fair to say. They're only down uh, 17% in that time. And clearly, some of the uh, underlying holdings, uh, again, were hit very much in that March period. So that was, that was the kind of key cause for their fall in NAV. However, I think probably the most interesting thing is in, in those results, they talked about coming into 2020, their big concern was with, with some of the underlying investments due to mature during the year, where would they find opportunities to reinvest that capital? And that was the kind of big question mark facing the fund at the start of this year. However, given what's happened in the, in the markets 
uh, and the sell-off that they've seen in their, in their space, they now believe that actually the number of opportunities for new investment is starting to pick up. And in fact, they're making, uh, they have made new investments in particularly in the bank and insurance sectors. Interesting as well, they're, they're saying that they do not expect to make any losses in terms of the, the bonds held by the fund. Uh, again, we'll see how that plays out. So, you know, an interesting story and, and clearly one that one of the key appeals uh, is the income and the fact that it's played monthly, as the name was suggested, and the, the management company, I should say, is 24 Investment Management. Uh, but the yield at the moment on a historical basis is not too far off 8%, 7.9%. So, again, we'll see how that plays out in terms of whether they're able to sustain it. But clearly, it's a key attraction of that story. Right. And whenever I hear a number like that, you know, more than 7% yield, that does suggest that there may be something else to look at under the bonnet, as it were. And I imagine that in their case, they do have some gearing underneath that, do they not? They have uh, some borrowing, which actually supports it, or is that just the nature of the investments that they're making? Because otherwise, you know, it's a strange thing to be, have a, as you say, 70% decline NEV, and it's still trading at a, at a premium and is still offering a yield of over 7%. That seems like too good to be true in a way. Yeah, and, and whenever you see any of the, these kind of vehicles, any of these uh, specialist debt vehicles offering those kind of yields, clearly they're not buying yields. They are buying much more specialist type investments or using uh, geared vehicles in, in order to access them as well. So th- there is always a story why they can generate those kind of yields. And, you know, I think your skepticism is, is correct. I think you have to be quite wary at this stage of, you know, whether these yields are sustainable, given the, the dislocation in the markets that we are seeing. Okay, so let's move on to another another trust, uh, which is interesting because it's recently changed its manager. We've talked about management changes in the past few weeks, but here's one which uh, has changed its uh, management not so long ago and has got off to a pretty good start. I'm talking about Bailey Gifford European Growth. Perhaps you could fill in the background for us on that and uh, tell us how and why it's been doing so well. So this investment trust used to be called the European uh, Investment Trust, and it was managed by uh, Edinburgh Partners with very much on a kind of value investment approach basis. Unfortunately, uh, the performance wasn't good, uh, and the board decided to look again at the manager, and as a result of a beauty parade process, appointed Bailey Gifford uh, as the manager, and they took uh, responsibility for the fund at the end of November last year. So a relatively short period of time in which Bailey Gifford had been responsible for that fund, but actually they've performed very well since then. So uh, unsurprisingly, the market's down um, probably about 8 or 9% since then, whereas this investment trust in NEV terms is up 15%. So, you know, we're always very wary of looking at very short periods of performance, either good or bad. But in this case, it clearly has had a, a good start and yet still continues to trade on a little bit of a discount. Uh, it has come in in the last few days, actually. But I think that's probably more reflective of the fact that Europe as an asset class is out of favour and has been for some time. Yes, I mean, and it's fair to say, I think, that Bailey Gifford's been on a bit of a roll recently. Their particular style of investing, which particularly their focus on growth companies, we've talked about value as opposed to growth, uh, has been very much in favour. And they're a, a very good firm with a strong tax record across. And they've been picking up a lot of uh, investment trust mandates in the last couple of years. One thing about their announcement I wanted to pick up on there, they, they talked about having what's called a very high active risk element. In other words, they're running a very concentrated portfolio where they're deliberately, or perhaps not deliberately, but just as a consequence of their process, they're investing in something, which a portfolio which is very different to the market in which they are investing. I think they talk about an active risk of 90%. Can you tell us what, what active risk is and, and uh, why is it useful when looking at uh, investment trusts? How much credence should we give to that number if we find it 
attached to an investment trust. So the point there is that uh, over 90% of the, of the portfolio is different to the index, which in this case will be the FTSE Europe ex-UK index. And this is borne out by the fact that the index has dropped, has fallen during that period, and actually they've risen, they've developed very good, very good numbers. So if you, um, from an asset allocation point of view, wanted simply to buy uh, European equities and were minded to use the ETF to do that, then that will give you a very different performance to, to something like Bailey Gifford. European growth. And that's important because clearly these funds are actively managed. That's exactly what the managers are trying to do to a greater or lesser extent. They're trying to give you something that just buying the benchmark can't necessarily do. So in the case of Bailey Gifford, it's a very concentrated portfolio of 40 stocks with real growth bent to it. But equally, there could be times when its performance is less than the index at any moment in time. So that's what you're really looking for there. But there's obviously a spectrum of active risk. Some active managers will, will be far lower down that, down that spectrum. In other words, it's very much a kind of benchmark plus one or two percent type style that they're trying to run the portfolio on. In the case of the Bailey Gifford funds, it's a completely different kettle of fish. So I guess that one of the reasons why active, this measure, active risk, as it's called, has become more prominent in the last few uh, years is because of the longer term record where people have seen that active management has not always performed very well against passive alternatives. And that therefore, if you're going to offer an actively managed fund, you really ought to be doing something a little bit different from, uh, what, as you say, what you could obtain by investing in an index fund or an ETF exchange traded fund that tracks the same market. So that is one reason. But of course, the companies that mention the active risk tend to be the ones who've got a high active risk. The, uh, the ones who don't, uh, I imagine, talk about it quite so much. Is that a fair comment? Yes. I mean, you know, there were some investment managers who really bang the drum that they are very active managers. And equally, there are others that won't offer that number as being particularly important. So, uh, again, it does come down to their, their risk appetite and very much their investment philosophy when, when they come to build their portfolios. Some investment houses are very much looking to deliver performance benchmark plus one or two percent because they know that over a period of time, that benchmark plus one or two percent puts them in the top quartile and allows them to grow their book of assets. Whereas other managers will be will be less focused on looking at the benchmark, and certainly Bailey Gifford will have that kind of attitude. We've talked again about the, the contrast between a value style of investing and a growth style of investing, and it's obviously been very much in favour of growth over the last uh, ten years. But if that was to change, would we expect that Bailey Gifford's uh, investment trust, if they were pursuing a growth style, would they do particularly badly, or would they do just as well? I mean, how do we think about that? I mean, in other words, how important is it to keep tabs on what's happening in the favoured style of the market at the moment? I think it comes down to how much a manager is willing to pay to own high growth companies. Uh, and equally, will managers keep their valuation discipline? If they say they're value investors, will they only buy those companies that screen well as being cheap companies? Um, there is an argument at the moment that some of the most successful companies, uh, and particularly the US tech giants, are clearly good companies doing very well and gaining market share, but a price of perfection. They are uh, very expensive by conventional metrics. Now, if we did see uh, a rotation away from those names, if obviously people kind of took profits on those names and reallocated the capital to some, some cheaper names, then it could be that you see those growth managers, you know, their relative performance come off at that stage. One of the interesting things about the Bailey Gifford European Growth Fund is that Stephen Pace, the, the co-manager there, argues that actually with, with Europe, not only can you actually invest on a kind of growth tack, but that you're actually getting quite attractive valuation as well. 
that you don't have to overpay for growth. Uh, and obviously, he didn't necessarily say this, but um, it does counter the arguments for those people that say that growth is expensive at the moment. I think he, he would say not in the case of Europe, which is a, an interesting counterpoint. I'd like to talk now about a much smaller fund, to which I have some sympathy for the fund manager. There was a gentleman I have actually met. This is a fund called RMC UK Microcap. So in other words, this is a fund that invests in very small market capitalization companies in the UK. And of course, the UK has been out of favor in relative terms for quite some time. And microcaps have obviously, as very, very small companies, tend to be suffer most during any kind of market sell-off. But tell us about that particular trust and the youngish manager who's uh, only been in post for a couple of years or so. So River Mercantile UK Microcap was launched a number of years ago and originally it was run by a chap called Philip Rodericks and performed well, developed a a decent track record before Philip left the firm uh, back in the early days of 2018. Um, And a younger member of the team, a chap called George Enzo, took over the fund at that stage. And as, as you correctly say, his numbers are, are not too bad. The NAV's off uh, a little bit, probably down about 6% or so since he took over compared with a, a fall of 14% for the benchmark. So a relative outperformance. However, it's the what's happened to the share price. And this is why it is important to, to look at the share price as well as the NAV, clearly. The fund moved from an, an 11% premium uh, in the time that his predecessor was running the fund. And it's now trading out at about a 30% discount. So what does that mean for the performance? Well, that 6% down 6% in NEV terms goes to down 41% in share price total return. So that's quite brutal. That's quite savage. And as you say, it is, it is reasonable to have sympathy with, with the manager. I think he's probably done his job, to be honest. And it's, again, a really interesting part of the marketplace. So just to explain, he's looking at listed companies in the UK, but very much at the small end of the marketplace. So they will not invest in companies with a market cap free float uh, above 100 million. So this naturally draws you down to the smaller end of the marketplace. And yet he's running a relatively concentrated portfolio of about 40 holdings, um, a whole manner of businesses in there, and some of them with quite exciting growth prospects. So again, you know, there are these, these opportunities. The fund is not a particularly large fund. It's probably around about 60 million pound market cap. So it is at the smaller end of the investment company's universe, um, but trading on a 30% discount. So Again, it would be a little bit too small for many of the mainstream investors in the investment company space, but arguably that's reflected in the discount. So another way of perhaps looking at it is to say that the, the market is pretty unforgiving to uh, managers when they start out and they have to prove themselves. But even if they do prove themselves, they still may not be doing enough, as you say, to get the attention of the bigger institutional investors. But I guess if he turns out to be any good, if George Enshaw turns out to be any good uh, over a longer period of time, he'll just have to stick it out for a while and hopefully the board will allow him to do that. If he does turn out to be a, a particularly good investor, then over time, he may be able to get his uh, rating back and then the trust could start to grow again. And of course, if he doesn't, then it'll be probably goodbye, au revoir to the, uh, to the trust altogether. Um, but I can remember, I mean, even when you know famous names like Anthony Bolton started up, the trust often traded at a discount in their early years because people didn't have, have enough uh, evidence, if you like, to judge a young fund manager on. Many try and many fail, of course, but just occasionally there, there are some good ones who come along and they just have to, if you like, earn their passage. So I guess we have to hope for George's sake. As I say, I know him, so I'm perhaps a little bit biased here, but uh, I wish him well anyway in this particular thing. But he's got a long way to go, obviously, from where he is at the moment. Let's talk about something else then. Let's finish up with a couple of other trusts we could talk about. One is 
one that goes by the name of JLEN or JLEN Environmental Assets. This is a, a trust, I think, which you are the corporate broker for your firm, is, I believe. Tell us about in this, this particular investment trust. What does it do? And what struck me as interesting here is it's, it has been making some changes to its, uh, the way it uh, values its uh, investments and also uh, made a rather important change to its dividend policy. So JLEN Environmental Assets, they had a, a Q1 update out this week. So in other words, looking at that three-month period to the end of March. Uh, and their NEV was actually down a little bit during that period of time. It was down just over 4p, about 97.5p. And that really reflected the impact of uh, lower power prices, which I think we've probably talked about in, in podcasts in the past, uh, and also the impact of, of a slightly higher UK corporation tax rate as well. But I think probably of most interest is what's a position in terms of the dividend, because the yield on uh, JLEN uh, is an attractive one at uh, by 5.6% at the moment. Uh, and it's, you know, that whole area of the marketplace, so the renewable uh, energy infrastructure plays that JLEN forms part of, um, many of them offer very attractive uh, yields of uh, north of 5%. But what they said in terms of their dividend uh, this week is that they're looking to uh, continue to increase it. So uh, the target is to move it from 6.6p to 6.76p, uh, if that makes sense. But they've dropped the link to inflation that they've had since the fund uh, was launched. So in other words, uh, they said we won't necessarily increase the dividend uh, every year in line or even better than, than inflation. And I think that's a practice that puts them in, uh, in line with many of their other peers in that area. Um, but just, I think, the, the suggestion that um, they were looking to moderate growth in terms of their dividend, not least, actually, because of what's happening to energy prices and the fact that we are now seeing uh, a market downward movement in the energy price curve. So it just means it's going to be a little bit trickier to keep that dividend growth going up in future. I have noticed that a couple of other investment trusts, uh, I think, uh, as well, we talked about the Renewables uh, Investment uh, Group and one of the solar funds, and they've also said that they're no longer going to target increasing their dividends in line with inflation. So that is potentially something to, uh, that at least investors should know. It doesn't necessarily mean they won't be able to do that. It just means that you've got to be more wary about it. And certainly, if it, you know, it was a very good marketing point to make beforehand, if you can guarantee to keep your dividend income in line with inflation. Uh, but maybe that time has gone for the moment, at least until we know more clearly what happens in the aftermath of the lockdown. I'd like to finish, if I might, by talking about one other investment trust. This is a much smaller specialist trust, which I know some people have an interest in, and this is something called India Capital Growth. So this is a fund that only invests in a single country. And we've talked before about uh, an investment trust that invests only in Thailand or Thailand and surrounding area. By and large, country-specific funds, I mean, they're not ever going to be particularly popular because who wants to own only investment in one particular country? It's not the only trust that invests in India, but uh, what's been the story with this particular trust? Again, you're absolutely correct. Uh, India capital growth, uh, it's, it's slightly on the small side. There are other uh, investment companies that do specialise in India. JP Morgan, Indian is probably the largest, um, with a market cap over 400 billion, and Aberdeen have a fund, Aberdeen New India, uh, market cap over 220 million. So India capital growth is, is a much smaller vehicle. And to be fair, it's it's more focused on kind of mid-cap uh, Indian companies. So uh, slightly more specialised 
approach. Performance has been um, probably disappointing, I think it's fair to say, and it faces a continuation vote uh, this year. So what the board have done in this particular instance, they've come out and said, well, look, we're looking to put a redemption facility in place. So thereby at the end of 2021, uh, investors will be able to redeem their shares at a 6% discount to NAV. And we'll put that mechanism in place so that every two years thereafter, they can take advantage of, of a similar facility. Uh, and they've also made changes to the management fee as well. So they're doing these things really, I think, to improve the, the attractiveness um, of the fund and to get institutional investors on side, which of course is very important when you're facing a continuation vote, um, when institutional investors have uh, large portions of your register and you have to get their support in order to, to keep going as an ongoing entity. But is there enough demand for specific country funds to, you know, to justify them? We talked obviously about Japan as its own whole sector to itself uh, last week, uh, but that's you know, understandable in terms of the size of the Japanese economy. But is there really, I mean, much demand for a trust or a fund that invests only in India, for example? I mean, there are other specific country funds I can think of. There's one that invests in Brazil, for example. Uh, and of course, the big one, I suppose, are the Chinese uh, investment trust, uh, Fidelity China Special Situations is a very large uh, investment trust investing in that area. But in general terms, do you think that there's much future for specific country trusts? Who really wants to buy you know, an investment trust that only invests in one specific country, particularly a relatively small country like uh, Thailand, India, of course, are much larger. So going back 20 years, the kind of country fund market was huge. I mean, there were lots of specific country funds out there. And really, they appealed to um, institutional investors who could effectively um, make allocations to the countries that they, they so desired. I think those days have to a greater or lesser extent gone. We, we do have a number of uh, single country funds left specifically on the emerging market and uh, Asian side um, and there are always some investors out there who would like to play a particular marketplace who, who see uh, India for instance as, as providing a real opportunity um, and therefore look for specialist uh, investment management skills to access that market. The alternative of course is just to buy uh, an ETF on the NSCI India or whatever it might be and take a passive approach but I think there are specialist managers who do just focus on, on countries. I think Vietnam is a very interesting one, actually. The Vietnamese market has, has you know, had its ups and downs, it's certainly fair to say. But there are um, some specialist managers who are based on the ground, focus on that market, uh, and have, um, a, a period of time, developed very interesting returns. So you know, it's those kind of plays that do capture a wider following from time to time. Simon, I think that's it and all we've got time for this week. It's been a very interesting week, as you say. Look forward to talking again next week. I'm sure there'll be a lot more news next week. We've got some index changes coming up, as we mentioned last week. And, of course, this whole idea of whether or not the markets are going to carry on their rather slow but steady recovery from the, from the lows of mid-March. So thank you very much for your time and look forward to speaking to you again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.